Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Lord, truly we thank you for another day. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says that you daily load us with benefits. And um, sometimes it's, it's hard and it's difficult to see exactly what those benefits are, Lord. But your word is true. And um, you do bless us, Lord. Your mercy is new and fresh every morning. And we thank you, Lord, that we can draw draw. The entrance of your word brings light and it brings understanding to the simple, Lord. And can we humbly say, Lord, that we are simple ones this afternoon, just looking for direction, looking for leadership, looking for comfort, Lord, through your word. And so um, we rely upon you, Lord, by your spirit to do that work within our hearts, ultimately um, doing your work so that we can look more like you. So we commit this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, we are going through the book of Ephesians, the letter which Paul wrote to these believers in Ephesus, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And... Within our study, uh, we have arrived at chapter 4 and verse 7. And if you have your Bibles with you today, I'll be grateful if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And we'll read through to verse 16 this afternoon and just see how the Lord will bless our time. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Amen. Um, from verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4, for we considered last week basically how the Apostle Paul spoke of walking. He spoke of movement, having fruit which would give evidence that you are applying the things which you know in your life. And he says that we should walk worthy of the calling for which we were called. Producing fruit and basically doing what is pleasing before God. Then he spoke of the oneness of our faith 
and the oneness of the Godhead. And within this oneness, he's encouraging us as a body to be one, to work as one, to act as one. And at the end, at the end of verse 6, from speaking of the, the oneness of the Godhead, he turns to how the, the oneness of God, he's working in us all. And so he moves from the oneness of God and, and now he starts looking at the us all, all of us. Because the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is really just about us. The first three is establishing and telling us exactly what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us. It's doctrine. It's things we have to know. But the last three chapters, as I said last week, once we know these things, we are to do. And so now Paul's looking at the to do, because there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He's in us all. So really, we don't have any excuses why we cannot be pleasing before God, why we cannot walk worthy of the calling, because God's in us all. And so when we're not doing the things which the Lord tells us we should do, it's not God's fault. It becomes our fault. It becomes our responsibility. And so Paul begins to make this thing personal. And when we read it, we should take it. It's, it's speaking to us as an individual. And he says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given. Unmerited favor was given to us. Each one of us. And as Paul writes this, being an apostle, being someone who got revelation from God, he saw the revelation of, of the body of Christ made up of unique individuals, all having varying gifts. What Paul saw was unity in diversity. He saw gifts that needed to be outworked in a practical way. And why do these needs, why do these gifts have to be outworked in a practical way? Because he goes on to say, because it's for the edification of the body. And so I'm, I'm basically going to touch on this again, but. It means that we all need each other. No man is an island. You may feel like you could just get on with it by yourself, but that's not New Testament doctrine. That's not how it works in, in God's kingdom, as far as God's body is concerned. And so, you know, we look in the scriptures and we say that the the eye cannot say that I have no use for the ear. You need each other. You know, I was thinking of a crazy example, you know. Let's, let's think of a big thing. Let's think of your heart. You know, your heart does all that work. It pumps blood all the way around the body. It sends oxygen around. It sends food around the body. That's a big thing, yeah? We need the heart. Yeah? Amen? What about my insignificant little nail? My little nail. Do I need my little nail? Well, I tell you what, if it wasn't there, I would know I need it. So what am I saying? I'm saying we need each other. And what Paul is going to drive at is that, I'm going to use the word you. If you are not doing your bit, the body suffers. The body's not able to function the way it's meant to function. Andrew, I don't know if he's here, I went to his wedding a couple of months ago. The day before I went to his wedding, I was at work, the table fell on my big toe. Did I know I had a big toe? <laughs> it swole. 
Don't even think about touching it. You could even go around it. If you went around it, I was like, no. I felt it. It was like pain. And I just felt, it's my big toe. It was just painful. And it hurt. All The rest of my body knew I was in pain. And all I'm saying is, is that when we're not helping each other as a body, the body's in pain. You know, and the body, if you think of the body naturally, it's very, very unique. Because you've got your core, your core organs. And let's just say, for example, you was out in the North Pole and you wasn't warm enough. Your body will start shutting down. But it would keep the core organs alive as long as it possibly could. It will start restricting blood supply to the, to the feet, to the hands. Because it wants to keep the core organs alive. Because it's the core organs which is going to keep you alive. I would dare to say that here at South London, we are functioning on core organs. And I'm not trying to have a go at people. I'm not trying to point the finger and make people feel bad. I'm not trying to do that. Because our desire to want to function within the body should not come from someone being this side of the pulpit telling you you have to do it. It should be an expression of your love for the Lord. Lord, you've done so much for me. It's the least I can do to serve someone a cup of tea, to pray for my brother or my sister next to me, to come in early in the morning and help set out chairs. To put back the tables back into the hall after the service has been done. But no, we leave it to the core organs. The core organs. It's not healthy, family. It's not. And Paul's saying, do you know what? They're practical things I've just spoke about. But he's saying, you've all been given grace. He's going to go on to say in verse 8, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Your gift may not be the same as the person next to you's gift. It may not seemingly be a big gift. You may not be that heart. You may be a nail. But you're needed. You are needed. As a local body... We desire here at Calvary Chapel, South London, to be an expression of Christ's body here. Not just in this building, in this locality. And we, we, we do these things because we have one, we have love for one another. Not because somebody's whipping you to do it or driving you to do it. And so, you know, as as... As I consider these things, you know, you know, I have to consider what, what is the, the measure? You know, the Greek word is mitron, which denotes a certain quantity of gifting. We've all got a certain quantity of gifting. You know, I'm blessed with, with my brother Will. Faithfully he comes and brings these drums in every week and he sets them up and he, pray, he plays these drums to the glory of God. Sometimes too loud. <laughs> but we love you, Will. But he's faithful. He's committed. And you know what? When Will can't, work, can't be here because he has to work, no drums. There must be another drummer in here. And if there's not another drummer, what can we do to encourage someone to be a drummer? That's just an example. What can we do? Does it mean we need to say to someone, do you know what? If you've got a desire to do it, I'm happy to contribute to pay for lessons. So that, you know, when Will's not here, for example, we still got a drummer. The beautiful keyboards. When GP is not around... We have no keyboards. Do we not have another keyboard player in the house? I'm just trying to be real with you guys. You know, there is always, and it's, it's the life of the church, there's always 
You know, the work of the many is done by the few. And these things ought not to be so because that's not what scripture encourages. And I'd rather let God be true and every man a liar. And so when it's not happening, the only thing we can deduce from that, really, if we're going to call a spade a spade, is that we are not giving ourselves over to pleasing God and using our giftings for the glory of God. Amen? That's the only thing. We've got to be real. And I, I want to encourage us as a family, please, let's start. Rolling up our sleeves, pulling up our socks and start doing the work of the ministry. Because this is what Ephesians is driving at. It's a message to the mature. It's it's a message to people who are really serious about their faith. You see, God has given each one of us grace. You know, it's a measure of, of grace. So no one is left out. You know, it's not like God is, we can't say that you were partial. You know, you gave that guy a rapping ministry and I couldn't string two words together. You were partial, God. We can't say that because he could turn around and say, well, you know what? Nobody can smile the way you do and greet people the way you do. We all have been given a gift, a measure. And you know, Romans 12 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as well. You know, in, in your own time, please study these things. But they list the various giftings. And some commentators, you know, they don't necessarily see these verses as an exhaustive list. But they see, see these, these giftings as like an open-ended categorizing of gifts and i like that i like that that line of 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 reasoning because again that would mean that there is no insignificant gift you know so the thing which you do i do and we think that nobody actually cares about do you know what that has great value to God he cares about it he desires that you use your gifting for his glory not to be seen not to be heard but for his glory so that the one who sees and hears what you do in secret can reward you if he wants to openly so as a body we have to recognize our gifting, value our gifting, use our gifting, all for the purpose of not benefiting ourselves, but benefiting the body. And so, we've all been given this measure of grace, this gifting. And so, Paul starts setting that out. Now, He's going to broaden the scope of the point which he, he, he wants to really make. And it's like, when you read it first, it kind of like seems like the scriptures take a bit of a, a left turn. But in verse 8, he says, Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, in this verse here, Paul actually quotes Psalm 68, verse 18, which is a messianic reference, which says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So, Ephesians Chapter 4 and verse 8 and Psalm 68, 18. Now, both these verses speak of ascension. And we know that they are referring to the Lord's ascension described in Acts 1, 9. But Paul wants to add clarity and revelation. Therefore, he adds verses 9 in 10. And as you see in your Bible, it's in parentheses. 
So as we look at the text, as we observe the text, we see the words ascended, then descended, descended, then ascended. Verse 9 says, now this he ascended, what does it mean? There's a question. But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Question. He who descended also is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. Why? That he might fill all things. So we read that and we think, well, I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. But what does that have to do with individual gifts? What does that necessarily have to do with us walking worthy of the calling for which we were called? I don't know if you're like me, but I ask those questions. Well, a bit of background information into where Paul is going with his thoughts. And to get the background information, we have to think about when the kings of Israel went out to war and they returned back to Jerusalem victorious in battle, what they would do is they would ascend Mount Zion, the holy mount of God. And they would ascend Mount Zion with the spoils of war and victory. And they would ascend uh, Mount Zion with their fellow countrymen who had been released from captivity. And the kings would have them all on one side. And on the other side, the king would have his enemies who were captured and were bound as slaves. And as they went through the procession, you know, they would be suffering humiliation because they had lost the war they had lost the battle now they were enslaved so what the psalmist is describing here is a scene of great joy where the victorious king is returning to jerusalem and as he returns to jerusalem with the spoils of war he gives out gifts to his subjects Okay, so bringing that through the cross now. When Jesus went to the cross, he went into battle with Satan and his demonic host. Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth, which is Hades, which we know from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, that Hades had two compartments. It had paradise or Abraham's bosom on one side and it it had what we call hell on the other side and being victorious Colossians 2.15 says having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So when Christ was crucified on the cross and he died, He descended to the lower parts of the earth and he went and he preached. And so again, you could look at that in the English and you could think, well, why would he need to go down to the lower parts of the earth and preach? But if you actually look at the Greek word for preach, it is caruso. And caruso doesn't mean preaching. It means making a proclamation. That's what it actually means. He made a proclamation of victory to those in Hades. (laughs) And as he made his proclamation, he opened up the doors of paradise. He opened up the doors of Abraham's bosom. And 
He then ascended. The heavenly mount of victory with the spoils of war. What's the spoils of war? He had the keys of death and the grave. Revelation 1.18 says, I am he who lives. I was dead. <laughs> and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The spoils of war. And he ascended, setting free the Old Testament saints which had been held captive. And as he ascended with the Old Testament saints, emptying Abraham's bosom and paradise, his enemies were still enslaved in hell. He made an open spectacle of them. We didn't see it, but the heavenly hell saw it. The heavenly realm knew all about it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That when Christ ascended, yeah, he first descended, but when he ascended, you know, he, he came and he, he gave out gifts to his subjects. Well, well, what are these gifts then? What are these gifts that Christ gave? Well... And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The victorious king gave gifts. And you know, when you look at these, 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 these offices, these gifts, I mean, you can do your own private study into them. But... The first gift is of the apostle, the apostles, who we have seen in our studies, you know, they were foundational to the growth of the church. Basically, if we didn't have apostles, you wouldn't have a Bible to read because they wrote canon of scripture. They were foundational. And we know that the apostles were personally called by the Lord. They were witnesses of his resurrection. And they were given specific benefits, as mentioned in Luke chapter 22 and 28, where the Lord says that he will give them a place judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we have also considered that apostles in this primary primary sense do not exist today but we do have apostles in a lesser sense and this is highlighted in second corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23 where it says if anyone inquires about titus he's my partner and my fellow worker concerning you or if our brethren are inquired about they are messengers and the word messenger there is apostolos of the churches the glory of Christ. That is sent out ones from the church. So we still have people who are sent out from the church to establish churches. But they're not apostles, capital A, laying down canon of scripture. And then we have the prophets. And the prophets in this sense were more like teachers or preachers of apostolic doctrine and what the prophets actually did was they spoke of the practical application of the word of God in the church it wasn't always just about the Lord would have me say to you my son it was more Taking what has already been written and expounding on it. Prophets. Then we have the evangelists. And the unique gifting of the evangelist is that the evangelist is one who presents the Lord Jesus Christ where Jesus is not known. The evangelist is basically out there. You know, missionaries take on the role of evangelists in a sense that they go to places where Christ is not known. So they go to declare Christ. 
and the pattern in the New Testament of an evangelist who is someone who wins people to Christ and then helps integrate them into the church. Timothy is a great example. As Paul writes to Timothy, he says to him, do the work of an evangelist. He says, I, ch- I charge you therefore, um, Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. All right, so is that doing the work of an evangelist? Preaching the word. I'll say so. Be ready in season and out of season. But, but what about these ones? Convince. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Nobody likes to be rebuked. We like the exhortation part, but there's a, there's a place for re- rebuking people. And there's a place for exhorting people. There's definitely a place for being long suffering. But we need to preach the word. Teaching, you see, all these things are so, so important for doing the work of evangelism. Because he goes on to say, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, it's interesting, it's not that they won't endure endure if you're actually demonstrating the gifts of the Spirit. It's not saying that they, they won't endure if you're not having beautiful praise and worship. It says, for the time will come when they not endure sound doctrine. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Is it based upon scripture? Have you studied to show yourself approved? Because he says they're not going to endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And the text goes on and on and on. Sound doctrine. But when we hear sound doctrine, it isn't for us just to say, oh, I know sound doctrine. It's for us to do something about it. So, as I read this, and it may seem like I'm having a go at evangelists, but I'm not. A biblical evangelist is not one of these fly-by-night ministers who share Christ at a crusade or in a concert and then nobody ever sees them again. That's not a biblical evangelist. It's not one of these individuals who no one knows anything about. Okay, you came and you shared a really good message, but what is your life about? Who are you? What is your character? Do you serve in your church? It's good that you're sharing Christ with me, but how do I know if there's any fruit in your life? A biblical evangelist is out on the road sharing the gospel, but they don't just leave people there. When they come into the, into the fellowship, they're there nurturing, helping them to grow. And I mentioned him quite a few weeks, but Mike, heavy. He's doing the work of an evangelist. And you know what? It's beautiful to see that gift functioning amongst us. Because you may not want to see it, but that is spiritual. That is God moving amongst us. A biblical evangelist is committed to building up and, and maturing people. In the local body. And then we have the pastor teacher, which many com- commentators see as one and the same ministry because the word some is left out before the word teachers. And, you know, the Greek phrasing does give the impression that it links them together. But if that is the case, then. As we considered in chapter 2 and verse 20, you'd have to link apostle and prophet together as well because it's the same sort of like phrasing going on. And so 
you have to decide where you kind of like, which side of the fence you kind of like fall on that. Whether you think it's one or the same, or whether you think it's two distinct giftings. And whatever the case may be, I actually think that a man or an individual could be gifted as a teacher, but not necessarily have the heart of a pastor. And a pastor may be able to share the word, but does not have that distinct, you know, gifting of teaching. And so, to throw them together, I think, well, I'm not saying it can't happen, but evidence proves that we can separate them quite comfortably. But, Whatever the case, wherever you, whichever side you fall on, the role of the pastor, pastor is to have oversight. Is to feed and to lead the flock into pastor's green. Making sure that you're being nurtured on good food. And the role of the pastor is to teach the word of God but actually to warn as well to warn of danger to warn of what not to do in your walk you know if you keep doing that that's not going to be walking worthy of the calling for which we are called it's to identify those things too and you know we as individuals as human beings what we actually do is we like to elevate these giftings, these ministries. We like to elevate them. And there is a place for giving them the honor due because they are giftings from God. But, you know, we look at a pastor and we think the pastor should be like Superman. He should do everything. You know, it's not good enough that the person next to me who is filled with the Spirit of God, who loves Jesus and is committed to... It's not good that they pray for me. I want the pastor to pray for me. It's, you know, it's not good if this person is looking out for me and phoning me sort of like on a weekly basis. No, I want the pastor to phone me. And if the pastor doesn't phone me, I don't check for that church. How you think is joke? That's how people are. And so, really, Jesus, roll with me a little bit. Well, Jesus, you shouldn't have really have gone anywhere then. You should have stayed on the earth. Because you said it's more needful that I go. Because if I go, then the Holy Spirit can, can, do, can be in all these different places at one time. Well, I can't be here because I can only be in one place at one time. So, Jesus, you're wrong. Because... If the pastor's meant to do everything, how are you meant to do everything? Do you see my train of thought? It's a body. Paul's talking about a body, a body ministry. Now, I'm not trying to say that a pastor, somebody functioning in this role, should just be carefree. I'm not saying that at all. We should be responsible. But to start putting on these weights and these expectations which are not biblical I think is wrong I do and so you see I'm passionate about that you know we all have the spirit of God dwelling within us you know, we are not, we're not following Catholicism where we have to go to the priest and he has to go to God. No, we go to God ourselves. And so, the role of a pastor to lead, to feed, to warn, to exhort, to comfort, you know, to shepherd the flock. And then we have the specific gifting of the teacher who basically is there 
to explain and expound on what the Bible actually says. Not necessarily what we want it to say, but what does the Bible say? Keeping things in their context. And within keeping things within their context, as best as they possibly can, bring in practical application to the hearts and to the minds of the people. Well, that was a good message, but so what? What does that mean to me in 2011? Because that's what I need. That's where the rubber hits the road. The teacher, they have that special gift in to explain God's word. And so these are the gifts which when Christ ascended, he gave. He gave to the body. And so with verse 12, before we get there, you know, again, the question asks is, well, why did the Lord give us these gifts? What is the purpose and the function of these gifts? And he says in verse 12, these were given for the equipping or perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. So the gifts are supposed to equipped, equip and perfect the saints. So we need these giftings amongst us. We need them. Now, again, I'm not... I don't recommend anybody gets a t-shirt saying, I'm a pastor. I'm an evangelist. I'm a teacher. But, you know, again, here at Calvary Chapel, South London, we very much are under the persuasion that healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep. This pulpit is not mine. There are those here who very much have a teaching gift. And we like to give people the opportunity to allow the Lord to use them. Those giftings are amongst us. I believe the Lord has given us everything we need to be that expression to our community. Again, but are we functioning in it? That is the question. But when it speaks about for the equipping of the saints or for the perfecting of the saints, the Bible basically uses three references to perfection. The first reference is positional perfection. And we have spoken a lot about positional, our position in Christ already. And if you're taking notes, first, first Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6, Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 are references for this. Positional perfection. Then we have ultimate perfection. Um, let me just say, positional perfection is something we already have. We are already seated with Christ. We're already perfect before God. Then we have ultimate perfection, which is something which happens in the future. It's future. It's when we go to be with the Lord. And... Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, and Philippians 3, verse 12, are references for this. But the perfection which we are interested in here in our text is experiential perfection. Perfection we can acquire in the here and now. It's the perfecting or the maturing of the saints so that we are Christ-like. So that we can experience Christ from day to day as we walk with him. That's the perfection or the equipping which Paul is driving at here. So that when we have that opportunity to act in the flesh, but we choose to act in the spirit, that is the process. 
It's being mindful of that from day to day. And within experiential perfection, God uses, he generally uses three ways of developing that within us. If I could call it three ways. But he uses the Holy Spirit to work on us from the inside out to develop this maturity. God often uses trials to bring us to maturity. And he uses his word to bring us to maturity. And it's this final thing I just said, his word. You know, the instruction of his word. You know, this is what he wants to administer through these gifts. Through the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. He wants to use those gifts so that his word is bringing about that experiential perfection. That experiential perfection. So as we come and we sit under the word, as we come and we allow, we're exposed to the word, and we allow the word to do what it does within us, and we start working it out, we may not necessarily feel it, but we're now demonstrating this perfection on a day-by-day basis. And that's the encouragement what Paul was given to these believers in Ephesus. And that's the encouragement what he was, what he, what the Lord is giving to us now. You know, as we allow ourselves to be exposed to these things, and as we do what we know we should be doing with the gift in which God has given us, I say it somehow. Somehow we're being changed. Now, for those of you who have been Christians for a little time now, you could probably look back on your life and think, wow, mm, I'm not the same as I was. I've actually changed. Not any benefit for me because I didn't really necessarily see it, but that's the Lord working it. That's the Lord working in my life. That's his Holy Spirit convicting me. That's his word challenging me. That's circumstances and trials putting me in a corner and making me say, all oh, right, okay, I want to act like this and everything within me wants to do that, but Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you know, it's just like, it's just like, a member of your family, a little child you haven't seen in a long time, and you saw them when they were little, and then you don't see them for a while, and then they're up there, and you think, wow, haven't you grown? You haven't necessarily seen it, and, but, you, but you see the evidence of it, but they're the one living it. They don't feel like, oh, yeah, I'm just... You see my point? It's, we don't necessarily see it, but others see it. They look and think, that person's not the same. And it's all evidence of us allowing the Holy Spirit to work on us, allowing God's word to work on us, allowing difficulties and trials to frame us and mold us. And we do this um, to edify the body and the work of the ministry. Because as we do this individually, Somehow, again, it, it affects us corporately. If everybody is helping and doing their part, then, you know, there's not a strain on one particular person or one particular area. Because everybody's mucking in. And this process, you know, is meant to continue on and on. And we get to verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and have the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we've already seen in verse 3 that we have the unity of the Spirit. But what we need to be working at is maintaining, is keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to work at that. Because 
We are a family. We are a body. And families have issues. I say it near enough every week, but we do. We have issues. We have disagreements with each other. You know, we do, we're not always pleasing towards each, towards each other. Uh, we're not always thinking the best thoughts towards each other. We're not always happy to take that lowly place. We want to be seen and recognized for what we do. And we have to battle against those things. So we have to maintain the unity. And as we maintain the unity, you know, and we apply faith, we establish ourselves in the knowledge of Christ, and we allow the working of experiential perfection to outwork itself in our lives. You know, that is the, the aim, and they are the goals. You know, we are being changed to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And if we take heed and we endeavor to function in this way, you know, verse 14 shouldn't apply to us. But it's given as a warning. It shouldn't apply to us. Because it goes on to say that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. It shouldn't apply to us because we should know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, when somebody comes with some, a dodgy doctrine, we should, we, we'll sniff it straight away. Nah, mm-mm-mm-mm, that sounds off. Don't smell right. But that, is, that doesn't come overnight. That comes with hard work. Being tossed and thrown and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Because there are wicked people out there who want to lead you astray. And as I said, it's only children who are so gullible that they could be you know, I don't want to say anything because I might upset a child here. Father Christmas is not real. <laughs> I do apologize, children. You didn't like that one? Okay. You know, we... It's children who are tossed to and fro. You know, it's, it's those who don't know their scriptures which are easily persuaded. And, you know, people who actually succumb to these things, you know, again, let's just call it straight. There's someone, there are people who have never really been established in sound doctrine. Never really perhaps given themselves over to the Lord. Maybe the Lord was just a, a God of convenience for them. He was convenient for me at this time in my life, and now he's not convenient for me. Maybe that. And so they're tossed to and fro. They're carried. No stability. And, you know, what we actually need in our lives, it, you know, again, is, is the simple truth of God's word abiding within us. God's word abiding in us. Just as 1 John says, you know, he has called you strong men because the word of God abides in you. We need that abiding word. Residential word. It lives in us. And the Apostle Paul in verse 15, he goes on now and he gives us a practical application of, of developing, you know, and outworking what he's already trying to establish. Developing positive and loving relationships with each other. Because he says, you know, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And you know what? When I consider this, I just thought, speaking the truth in love is something which we find so hard to do. You know, as opposed to, you know, saying something lovingly 
but it needs to be said because somebody may be going astray, something may be happening. We'd rather not say anything. Oh, if I say anything, it's going to cause an argument. I don't want to cause an argument. I'm not encouraging people to cause arguments. But Paul says, speaking the truth in love. So there's room to say something, but say it in a loving way. Look, I'm not trying to have a go at you. I'm not. But you know what? No, none of us are perfect. And this perhaps character trait is difficult. It's not putting on Christ. And so instead of sort of like humbly and lovingly saying something, like we don't say anything at all. And in a way, that could be worse. Because you're not helping that person to understand, you know, there's some rough edges there which need to be smoothed. You're not helping them. You know, it's, it's, it's having, and I'm, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit crude. It's, it's, having, it's having, you know, the, the, what's the nice way of saying it? <laughs> it's having it coming down your nose and, talking, and you're talking to someone and they ever actually say, actually, you've got something coming down your nose because they don't want to offend you. But the better thing to do is saying, do you know what? Can I, can I give you a tissue because you have something coming down your nose? You guys like the nose joke? <laughs> but you see, we, we, we'd rather not say anything. And as I said, sometimes it's worse because you're not really being beneficial. You're not being helpful. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love. If we speak the truth in love... You know, because usually what happens is we don't say anything. It festers. And then somewhere along the line, it comes out as some drama. It blows up because what you do is you start, oh, yeah, well, they said this or they did that. And, you know, it becomes that little thing. Oh, they did that again. Another little thing. Oh, so they, oh, so they said that then. Another thing. And another thing. And another thing. And it's like, well, why didn't you just deal with it in the first place? Because you've allowed it to fester now. And now it's become something big. And now it's ER. We're, we're, we're watching a scene from ER. Blood everywhere. <laughs> Drama. Come on, people. We need to speak the truth in love because, <laughs> again, look at the next words. If we speak the truth, we may grow up in all things. Into him who is the head, Christ. You know, God is very much in the business of us growing up, maturing. And so if we genuinely act the way that the Lord intended us to act, he wants us to act, it helps the body to grow. To grow into an expression of Christ. Who is the head? The head of the body. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working. By which every part does its share. Causes growth for the body. For the edifying of itself in love. Now, in closing, I just want to break this down. Just a little bit. The ability to do this comes from whom? Who is Christ, obviously. Amen? From whom the whole body? Well, who's the body? You and me. The whole body joined and knit together. Think about that. Joined and knit together. What's the pictures in your mind? Not something which is easily broken, which is loose. We're, we're getting joined and knit together. No, if any, any, if anyone here does crochet or knitting, but you don't knit something loose. You, you know, this is tight. Joined and knit together. So he has made us inseparable in his body. By what, 
by what every joint supplies. Well, that's a good one. That means every joint supplies. I need you, and you need me. Because every joint needs to supply. Okay, let's go on. According to the effective working. Now, whenever God does, some, does, does something, does he do, does he do it ineffectively? I'm just going to try a ting over here. And if it works, it works. But if it doesn't work, wow, I tried a ting in it. Is that God? That's not God. It's, it's effective working. It's, it's, you know, energia, as I said to you before. He's effective working power. Yo, okay. So we've got this effective working power in the text. Lovely. Does he go on? Can I get an amen? Does he go on? He goes on. By which every part, hmm, every part, every part, every believer is expected to make a contribution. By which every part does. I want to stop there. Every part does. That's that walking thing, isn't it? That's that moving thing. That's that active thing. Every part does. Does what? Does its share. Oh, very nice. So first we have to be in the business of doing, and then we have to be in the business of doing our own personal share. Because if we do that, the next thing it says is causes growth. Growth individually. And it causes growth of the body. So it causes individual growth, which causes corporate growth of the body. Why? For the edifying. It's all for the purpose of edification. Edification of me as an individual so I can look good. Edification of itself, of the body. Of the body whose primary purpose is to be pleasing to the head. So it's not for it to look good individually, but it's for the body to glorify God. And he closes and says, in, and I'm going to just add a couple, in unconditional agape love because the word love here is agape but I don't like you but God says it's unconditional love you don't have to like me just show the actions of love towards me because love is an action it's not a feeling it's an action I choose to love you God did not just look at us and say oh they look love worthy yeah he chose as an act of his will to love us. And he says, I love, I'm expecting you to love. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that um, we, can come, we can find comfort within it. We can find instruction within it, Lord that we can be encouraged and challenged. And it's beautiful, Lord Jesus. Ultimately, it bigs you up. You are the word. You are the word made flesh, Lord. And our desire, Lord Jesus, as a leadership, as a fellowship, Lord, is to glorify your name, to big you up, Lord, and to do all that you've asked us to do, Lord. Because as we do those, do those things, that is what glorifies your name, Lord. As we are all doing our part, doing our share, playing our role, using our gifts, Lord. Lord, our, the body will grow. You will, be, you will be glorified. We will be edified, Lord. And people will see, Lord, and glorify you in heaven. That is our desire. Lord, we want to commit the rest of this day into your hands, Lord. And just pray, Lord, that you would continue just to minister in the way that you see fit. 
So um, thank you for this time again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.